What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Proverbs 16.3, Proverbs 16.3, Galal, commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts will be established. You won't be driven crazy when you roll your works onto the Lord. Commit them. So this image of rolling our works, rolling our direction, rolling ourselves on the Lord is very important, and this is what formed the basis for Peter when he said in 1 Peter 5, 7, 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. So when the mockers are there and they're saying, they're using this word galal, they're using scripture to taunt the Lord, and we have the whole history of what they said. This actually, we have, you know, we're Psalm 22, but we have the complete history in Matthew 27, 39. Matthew 27, 39. Listen carefully what they said. They that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, thou that destroyest the temple and builds in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, save a, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe uh, in him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. So this is the record of what actually occurred there. There's several mockeries that are going on in that. Uh, you know, I, I know you didn't turn to it, so Matthew 27, 93. So I'm gonna read it again, and every time you hear a mockery, raise your hand, okay? They that passed by and reviled him, wagging their heads, saying, thou that destroyest the temple, there you got the first one. That's the first mockery. You destroyed the temple, raise it in three days. Keep on going. If thou be the son of God, come down, that's the second one. He said he was the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and the elders said, he saved others. That's the next one, that's the third one, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, that's the fourth one, the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Your hands should all be up on this one, okay? That's the fifth one. Let him deliver him now if you'll have him. So there you have it. Five forms of mockery that they used against the Lord. Now, 
Five forms, we just read them, right? Were all five of those statements of mockery called out in Psalm 22? Only one was called out, and that was the last one, where it said in verse 43, in, in Matthew, uh, Matthew 27, 43, 27, 43, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now. The other four are not called out in Psalm 22. Why was that the one that was called out in Psalm 22? Why were not the other four called out in Psalm 22? The reason is that was the most painful. That was the one that was, had the most barb on it, that was the most difficult for the Lord to bear because that was the one, you know, that wasn't the one about destroying the temple or about he was the son of God or that he saved others or that he was the king of Israel. No, the worst one was he trusted in God. He rolled himself on God, Galal, and let him deliver him if you'll have him, seeing he delighted in him. So that was the one that's called out in Psalm 22 because that's the one that hurt the most. That really hurt. And especially that last part of that mockery where they sing, they said, seeing he delighted in him. That hurt. That hurt a lot. Went right to his relationship with God the Father. That was getting at the Isaiah 53.10 statement, Isaiah 53.10 statement, which is not a mockery, but it hurts a lot. Isaiah 53.10 when it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. It was God the Father who bruised him, who put him to grief. And so when they said, he trusted the Lord, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him, when they said, seeing he delighted in him, that really hurt because that went to the relationship between him and his father. That relationship of, of he delighted in him when the father spoke from heaven in Matthew 3.17, Matthew 3.17, lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So now, this is getting down, really down to the bottom here for the Lord. And now we see how the Lord raises his, himself up. He's alone now, but he raises himself up. He's, he, he encourages himself, and we see how he does it in verse nine. In verse nine, he says, no, but thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. So what, it's interesting. He encourages himself by thinking back about when he was born. I mean, do we, when's the last time you did that? You know, I thought about, you know, when I was born. Now, why would the Lord think of his birth in a time like this? And the reason is because at childbirth is when a mother and a baby are, vi are they're close to death. They're close to death. It's a very vulnerable time. It's, it, it, the, the whole process is not called delivery for nothing. It's not delivery like the big stork in Sharp Memorial Hospital there that's gonna deliver the baby. You know, it's delivery because you're being delivered from death. That's where it comes from. So the Lord thinks of the time when he came close to death, when he was the most vulnerable as a baby being born, and he sees God delivered me. So he sees the hands of God receiving him when he's, a, when he's born, you know, and he says, thou art he that took me out of the womb. That's like, he could have said something like, some people see the hands of a midwife taking me out of, the out of the womb. No, I see the hands of God taking me out of the womb in verse nine. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. And then the Lord, he thinks back when he was born in his whole young childhood there, it was nothing more than just vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerable. I mean, there was Mary and Joseph. For all intents and purposes, they were destitute as a couple. And when the Lord was born, they were so far from their friends, from their family, and traveling the great distance, and the vulnerable in the womb, and, and no room in the inns for him to be born. So God provides a stable 
King Herod, after he's born, goes to murder all the children there. God delivers him by sending him down to Egypt. All this is running through his mind. And now the Lord has come to a place where he is the most vulnerable of dying. He is dying on the cross. And he's thinking of the times in his life when he was the most vulnerable and how God brought him through that just like David did when David did in Psalm 71.6, Psalm 71.6, when David said, by thee have I been holden up from the womb. Thou art he that took me out of my mother's bowels. My praise will be continually thee. So we can imagine the Lord thinking of the many times that he was protected. I mean, this is what happens, you know, when you, when you come to a point where they're dying, they know they're gonna die, you know, and, and you know, what do they do? They sit back and they say, well, let me look back on my life, you know, and see how, you know. and so this is what he's doing. He knows he's gonna die, he's thinking, he's, he's thinking back on his life, and he starts with the birth, and then he's thinking about what happened in Luke 4.29, Luke 4.29, Luke 4.29, where it says, they rose up and thrust him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he passed through the midst of them, and he went his way. God delivered, he's thinking, God delivered me. I was being led to the cliff, and they were gonna throw me over the cliff and kill me. And he's thinking, John 7.19, John 7.19, when he said to the, to the people who were trying to kill him, did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keepeth the law. Why go ye about to kill me? And he's thinking about in John 8, 37, John 8, 37, I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. In John 8, 40, John 8, 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man that have told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. And John 8, 59, see John 8, 58, John 8 is, a, John 8, you can just title John 8 by the skin of his teeth, because he was constantly on the, on the verge of being killed. In John 8, 59, they took up the stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself. All this, he's thinking about these ways, God delivered, God delivered, and he's using that as arguments, as weapons, as fuel to plead for his deliverance. And this is so important for us to see because we, as we see the Lord doing this, we can see him finding weapons everywhere to, be, to fight against discouragement. So we should do. He's finding reasons everywhere to believe that God's gonna deliver him. And so this is what he's doing. Now, then he says in verse nine, thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. He says, that one made me hope. I, like, I, you know, I always wondered, what is a baby thinking about when he's nursing? I don't know, you know, he's making all those cooing sounds. I'm wondering what's going through his mind, you know? Here, the Lord said that what's going through his mind is hoping in God while he was nursing. Okay, I mean, I was, I was only nursed two weeks, which explains why I have all my problems in life, because, you know. <laughs> but my wife, with every new son, she would nurse him longer and longer, you know, became like the secret. Finally, our last born was Joshua. She nursed him until he was three years old. And the only reason that Cheryl stopped nursing is because in public, he started to walk up to Cheryl and lift her blouse up. <laughs> and it was just embarrassing for her. So said, well, I gotta stop this. But Jewish mothers typically nurse their babies for a long time, like this kind of time. It's supposed that Hannah nursed Samuel for that much time. When it says in 1 Samuel 1.22, 1 Samuel 1.22, it says, but Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child, that'd be Samuel, and the child be weaned, and then I'll bring him, that he may appear before the Lord. And Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, do what seemeth thee good, carry until thou hast weaned him. Only the Lord established his word. So the woman abode, gave her son suck until she weaned him. And when she weaned him, she took up the offerings. And it says, and the child was young. 
the child was young. Now, what she did when she brought him up there is that she made a little coat for him. Little guy, he had a little coat. And every time she would go visit him, she brought the coat. In 1 Samuel 2.19, for Samuel 2.19, moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So he was probably three years old, who knows? But anyway, the Lord prays, he says, thou dost make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. And then he goes on and he says in, in verse 11, verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, there's none to help. He says, be not far from me. He's praying, don't abandon me. Don't withdraw yourself from me. And then he says, trouble is near. This is how he is describing how he's feeling now, this, this anticipation. Trouble is near. He says, trouble is near. Maybe he could sort of sense the footsteps of Satan marching toward him with all of the armies of principalities and powers of darkness and all the spiritual wickedness in high places. And he, he can sense the footsteps are coming and he says, trouble is near in verse 11. He's up there in the upper room before he goes to the cross. He's looking over all of his disciples there. He sees a Judas Iscariot. He knows he's gonna betray him. And it says in Matthew 26, 21, Matthew 26, 21, as they did eat, he said, verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me and they were exceeding sorrowful and began everyone to ask of him, Lord, is it I, is it I? And he answered and said, he that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. He looks at Judas Iscariot and he thinks, verse 11, trouble is near, trouble is near. He turns to Judas Iscariot and he says, but Satan enter into him, what you're gonna do, go do quickly. He knows trouble is near. He's there in the garden. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. He hears the great crowd coming with the swords and the staves and so forth. And to arrest him, they're being led by Judas Iscariot. He, he, Judas Iscariot's in the front of the crowd. He's gonna point him out by kissing him in Matthew 26, 47. Matthew 26, 47. While he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the 12 came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed them, betrayed him, gave them a sign saying, whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. Forthwith he came to Jesus and said, hail master, and kissed him. He hears, he knows what's gonna happen, he hears the crowd coming, and he's, he's thinking to himself, verse 11, trouble is near, trouble is near. He's brought then to a mock trial. There are many witnesses there that are witnessing against him, but their testimonies don't agree with each other, and they're looking for a reason to condemn him to death. And it says in, again, Matthew 26, 59, 26, 59, the chief priests, the elders, all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. There are many false witnesses, but they found none. They didn't agree. Again, he knows trouble is near. Trouble is near. He's condemned. He's turned over to Pilate, the Roman ruler. The Pilate wants to release him. He says, you know, what evil has he done? Let's, uh, let's just be done with this. But they won't let him. They, he's standing there, and he hears them crying out, let him be crucified, let him be crucified. And Pilate is arguing with them. Why? I find no evil in this man. Why? But they keep pressing. He knows trouble is near. Verse 11, he's nailed to the cross. He's anticipating the sins of the world are gonna be laid on him. He knows, verse 11, trouble is near. He smells the dust of death. He knows that death is not far. He says in verse 11, trouble is near. And then he says, there's none to help. David was never in a situation where there was none to help. David always had the Jonathan that was there with him. There was always someone to help David. But the Lord said, there's none to help. There's none to help. There were those who could have helped him at the cross, the Roman soldiers, but they didn't want to. There were those that wanted to, like his disciples, but they couldn't. And he really did want someone to help him. He, it says in Psalm 6920, Psalm 6920, reproach, shame, reproach hath broken my heart, herpa, 
and I am full of heaviness, and I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. So there he is, he's looking for someone. I mean, how sad. And he says in verse 11, there's none to help. It's a very sad statement. It reminds me of the day, I may have told you this, when my third son, Joshua, he has two little boys, Joshie and Jeremy, and, and we were getting ready to go somewhere. I don't remember where, but anyways, we're just kind of going from the car to the front door, from the car to the front door, getting everything ready. Jeremy, little Jeremy, was, I think he was about four years old at the time, and Jeremy kind of went off to the side of the walkway there where there's a, there's a rock, you know, it's probably about three feet tall, and Jeremy managed to climb to the top of the rock. And so, you know, we're kind of going back and forth, and he's kind of sitting up there squatting like a bird, you know, on top of this rock. And he's watching us go back and forth and back and forth, and he's just there, okay, well, Jeremy. And then he starts to look more and more scared and more and more terrified. And we're kind of, you know, occupied with going back and forth. And so I stopped, and I looked at him, and he said, can you help? He said, can you help? I said, what do you mean help? You know, what what is it? You know, I I didn't know what he meant. And then I, I realized, you know, I kind of figured it out. Oh, he can't get down from the rock. I didn't know that. <laughs> and, you know, that was it. He got up on the little rock there. He's four years old. He's sitting there squatting. He's terrified. He can't get down. He says, can you help? And so I hold out my arms, and I took him off of the grand rock, the three-foot rock, you know. <laughs> so I was sitting there thinking, there's no problem here. He got up the rock, got down the rock, but he couldn't. So he said, can you help? And now from my perspective, I looked at that rock and thought, what's the problem? But for his perspective, it was the Grand Canyon that he was looking at. There was no way he could get down. So he says, can you help? You know, that, that happened over 10 years ago. And I've thought a lot about it, you know, since then. And, you know, and how he was sitting up there with a plea for help. Can you help? I wanted to memorialize it, what happened there. So you come to my house and you start down the path in the front door. You'll see the rock and you'll see a plaque there. And the plaque is, I like plaques. Anyway, and, and the plaque is Matthew 15, 25. 15, 25 says, Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. And, um, and that statement came from a Gentile woman whose daughter was tormented by a demon, and she had just been told by the Lord that, sorry, I'm not sent to you. I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she looked to the Lord for mercy, and she said, Lord, help me. And really, that was the first words I prayed when I prayer ever made, Lord, help me. And that's the words for anybody and everybody of how you get God. You get God when you say, Lord, help me. Anyway, just like I helped Jeremy get down from the rock, the Lord helped that woman. Help is wonderful. It's fantastic. But what if there's no help? What if I didn't stop and help Jeremy? He probably thought he was gonna die up there and turn into some human leather or something like that <laughs> on top of this rock. What if it was a situation like in verse 11 where there is none to help? How terrible is that? This is the condition that the Lord is in when he says there's none to help. When he says there's none to help, it penetrates into us because it shows us just how alone the Lord was on the cross. And it's the basis for the, the, the song we sing sometimes. You know, he could have had 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and for me. He died alone saying there's none to help. There's none to help. He looked for someone to help, someone to take pity, someone to comfort him. He looked at his disciples. He looked at his disciples. One of them betrayed him. The rest ran away. And he says there's none to help. He looked for some angels. He said, well, wait a minute, the angels have helped me in the past. 
I mean, they just helped me in the Garden of Gethsemane when I was sweating the drops of blood and it says the angels came and, and strengthened him. Angels came when, when he was in the, in the desert there, in the desert of temptation after the 40 days of fasting. He said the angels came, but now there's no angels. There's none to help. There's, no, there's none of my disciples to help. There's none angels to help. And he looks to God, and he looks to God on the cross, and instead of help, he cries out, my God, my God, where are you? You gone. You left me. You abandoned me. Why have you forsaken me? So he says, for, as for God, there's none to help. As for angels, there's none to help. As for man, there's none to help. He looks for someone, anyone, to help him in his greatest hour of need. But as we just said in Psalm 6920, Psalm 6920, there was none. I found none. There, verse 11, there is none to help. He looks, he finds no one to help him, and he's surprised. He's really surprised. He's actually surprised. It says in Isaiah 63, 5, Isaiah 63, 5, I looked and there was none to help. I wondered that there was none to uphold. He's kind of surprised. But then, in, in Isaiah 63, 5, Isaiah 63, 5, after he says there's none to help, he says, therefore, mine own arm brought salvation to me. In my fury, it upheld me. So rather than to let his misery just crush him when he realized that he has to go it alone, he says, I'll go it alone. I have to go it alone, I'll go it alone. Now, and the father, he went it alone. And the father refrained from hearing him until a time came, a wonderful time came in which, in which the father called this time the acceptable time. So he wasn't being heard, there was none to help, he had no help until Isaiah 49, 8. Isaiah 49, verse eight tells when this all changed. Isaiah 49, eight says, thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in the day of salvation have I helped thee. I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth. So the acceptable time for the Father to hear was that came at the end in, in verse 21, in verse 21, when he says in verse 21, thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. When is this? The resurrection. This is when he's heard. This is the acceptable time. What has happened to make the difference? In, in Isaiah 49.8, Isaiah 49.8, he became the covenant of the people. The, he became the covenant of the people. And then he says, he says to all of us, I want you never ever to forget that time when I became the covenant of the people. So he institutes for us something in Luke 22.20, Luke 22.20, when it says, likewise also the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. It is the new covenant in my blood. It is when I became a covenant for you. I became a covenant for you from Isaiah 49.8, Isaiah 49.8. And so he says, you drink from all this, that's communion. That's why we do communion, to remember the time whenever you take communion, think about that. That's when he became the covenant of the people, but in order for him to become the covenant of people, he had to go through a period of time of there was none to help. He had to go through a period of time, I cry in the daytime, thou hearest not, and in the night season I'm not silent. He had to go through a period of time where he was not heard, where he realized there's none to help. There's no God, there's no angels, there's no man, none to help, and I've got to go it alone, and he went it alone. And when he did that, and, and he died for our sins, he became the covenant of, of our covenant, the covenant for my people. He says, this is the New Testament in my blood, in me, in other words. And that's what we should always remember when we take the communion, is, this, is that what he had to go through 
in order for him to be the, the sacrifice for our sins. He continued, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, for, for the one who is our covenant with you. We thank you, Lord, for, Father, for, for giving your son and for, we thank you, Lord, that, Father, we thank you that you refrained from breaking down through it all and hearing him cry to you. Lord Jesus, how can we thank you enough? Amen. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California. Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org.